0: Good evening and welcome to Mining the Riches of the Parsha. Tonight is Thursday night, January 14th, 2021. It is such a wonderful thing that we're able to connect in this way tonight, to be able to join together, to study Torah, to inspire each other. And I am grateful to you for spending this time here tonight. There are several ways something can come into my possession a gift I can receive a gift a loan someone can lend something to me I can purchase something or I can receive something as an inheritance each of these methods of transfer is unique there are different rules and different meanings associated with each of these methods so it is significant that the torah specifically describes torah itself as an inheritance the famous pasuk near the end of the torah torah tziva lanu moshe marashaki las the torah is commanded by god to us through Moshe, an inheritance of the congregation of Jacob, we have the Torah as a Yerusha, as an inheritance. And that is a conscious declaration because actually the Torah is given to us, to B'nai Yisrael, as a gift. We refer to the event at Mount Sinai As Matan Torah the giving of the Torah Matan is a gift God gave us as a gift the Torah at Mount Sinai that's what we celebrate on the holiday of Shavuos so we need to understand what is being communicated to us by referring to the Torah specifically as an inheritance that's one example Second example at the beginning of our parsha God's long awaited momentous promise God says to Moshe finally after 210 years of slavery and persecution in Egypt and Mar Libney Israel God says to Moshe tell the children of Israel Ani Hashem, I am God I am now going to take you out of the persecution of Egypt. I am going to bring you into the land of Israel, the land flowing with milk and honey. I'm going to bring you into the land of Israel. And I am going to give it to you. And I give it to you. As an inheritance. Ani Hashem, I am God. First, Venasati Osa, I am giving it to you, but I'm not giving it to you as a gift, but rather Morasha, as an inheritance. And that is also a unique, conscious declaration, because in fact, the first parcel. Of the land of israel to come into jewish possession was through purchase avraham purchased a burial place for sarah from ephron in Hebron for 400 silver coins we discussed the significance of that in the parsha of chai sarah so it is curious That here the Torah, God should say I'm giving the Jewish people the land of Israel as an inheritance when it is not obvious that it is actually an inheritance. So our rabbis in the Medrish explain this terminology through a play on words. It's a rabbinic uh, tradition of when there are similar letters and sounds of two dissimilar words, the rabbis say here, as they often say, "Al tikri morasha ella meurasa." Don't read the word as if it says morasha, which was what what it says, but rather as if it said meurasa. Now, first of all, the rabbis are not suggesting that there's a Amendation in the text the rabbis suggest this as a way to interpret one word as if it is actually another word the word morasha means inheritance the word maurasa means betrothed one who is engaged to be married similar letters Similar sounds, but very, very different words. What do our rabbis mean to suggest? Rabbi Eli Monk explains this strange word association relating to the Torah. Let's start with Torah as follows. The Torah says to us, God's words, God's commandments, God's stories, God's values, God's wisdom, everything that is in the Torah. The Torah says to us as the Jewish people and to every one of us as individuals, the Torah says, I don't want to be your Torah like an inheritance that is old. Conveying the image of You'll excuse me, an elderly relative who sits quietly in the corner, and family members approach with a respectful greeting before moving on to more lively conversation elsewhere. I want to be, says the Torah to us, like your beloved for whom you feel passion, with whom you want to be at every moment and in every place, and for whom you would sacrifice everything. I want to be, says the Torah to us, relevant and involved in every area of your life, not just the recipient of an annual obligatory visit, But rather, as we say in the words of the Shema, concerning the words of the Torah, when you're sitting in your home, and when you're traveling along the way, when you go to sleep, and when you get up, at every moment, wherever you are, the Torah should accompany you. The Torah has something to say to you. The Torah wants to be involved in your life. In this analysis, morasha, which usually means inheritance, is actually understood to be the opposite of inheritance. And that's what our rabbis mean to suggest, according to Rabbi Monk, with this wordplay. I think today, especially, This is our grand challenge, to study Torah as it relates to every facet of life. Shabbos, kashras, prayer, holidays, economics, agriculture, health, public policy, personal morality, Everything can be illuminated and uplifted by the insights of the Torah. And that is the goal of all that we, you and me, do together. So that's one aspect of the Torah as inheritance. <clears throat> in our parsha it is eretz israel the land of israel that is portrayed as morasha an inheritance and here too it conveys multiple lessons the talmud understands from our possek a legal matter that the land of israel was divided among those who left egypt not those entered the land of Israel which as you know was 40 years later in other words the Jews inherited Israel while they were still in Egypt and that's not only a legal statement about who the actual heirs are for distribution purpose But it's also a very powerful psychological statement because having already inherited a portion in the land of israel every single jew traveled through the desert toward their land not just toward a land that they would later receive there's a famous quote i'm sure you've heard it before If you want to build a ship, don't drum up people to gather wood and don't assign them tasks and work, but rather inspire them to yearn for the vast and endless sea. Conferring the land of Israel as an inheritance in our Parsha achieves precisely that to create the yearning and the vision for every Jew in Egypt to reach home to reach their home and this must have had a profound impact on motivating them to continue despite the delays despite the setbacks, despite the frustrations of the journey through the desert. That's another layer of the meaning of the land of Israel as an inheritance. But allow me to share with you two further layers of significance that are formulated by Rabbi Aaron Lichtenstein, a blessed memory. Rav writes When a person receives something as an inheritance, he relates to it in a way that is completely different from his attitude towards a gift. A person's relationship with a gift is rather weak, his ownership of it is sudden and to a certain extent, temporary. The situation is different when he receives something as an inheritance. When he knows that the object belonged to his family for many generations, he feels a special connection with it. In his eyes, the object is worth more than its market value. It symbolizes his connection with the past and also connects him with the future. As he received it from his parents, so he is bound to pass it on to his children. And as he holds that object, he has a sense of being part of a long, unbroken chain. And it worked. Our connection to the land of Israel, even for those of us living far away even for those of us who have never visited is strong and cherished and appreciated far beyond any gift we may have received especially in the way it connects us to our past and to our future. The Rav, Rav Yosef Soloveitchik, was was once asked, what have the Orthodox Jews given to Israel? Now, this question was asked of Rav Soloveitchik several decades ago, before Aliyah became so popular and so prevalent. That question, thank God, doesn't even make any sense today. It would never even be asked today. But several decades ago, It was asked, what does the Orthodox world do for Israel? And listen to the Rav's answer. He said to this person, go to the airport. And what do you see? Coffins and students. Our past and our future. What else is there to give? our Pasuk puts in motion the process that unfolds even today expressed so beautifully by Yehuda Amichai. I didn't kiss the ground when they brought me as a little boy to this land but now that i've grown up on her she kisses me she holds me she clings to me with love with grass and thorns with sand and stone with wars and with this springtime until the final kiss That's an expression of the land of Israel as an inheritance. Reviron has a second layer that has particular relevance to us. He quotes a passage from Sefer Yehezkel, the prophet Ezekiel, where the prophet quotes the inhabitants of Jerusalem who said, it is to us that this land is given. Those Jews living outside of Israel have no connection to it. Only we living here are worthy of being connected to the land of Israel. God says through the prophet, therefore say, so says the Lord God, although I have cast them far among the nations, there are many Jews in exile far, far away from Israel, and I have scattered them among the countries. I shall gather you up from all the nations. Explains reverend Lichtenstein. The land is given as an inheritance to the nation of Israel the nation must protect it and pass it on to future generations the land does not belong to some particular individual or group at some specific time rather it is the possession of the entire nation wherever in the world we may be anyone who is living in it represents the nation of israel and must preserve the land on behalf of the entire nation and pass it on to those who come after him this shapes how we view israel here today now Certainly, those living in Israel, extending effort for it, sacrificing for it, receive immense reward to which we outside Israel are not entitled. And with that sacrifice comes the privilege of decision making. But also, there is the responsibility of stewardship on behalf of the entire Jewish people everywhere in the world. And this also means that every one of us not yet living in Israel is also an owner, spiritually if not legally, just as the Jews leaving Egypt were owners. And that means that we should always try to see ourselves like the Jews in our Parsha in Egypt. We here, far away from Israel, likewise, should see ourselves as on a journey leading us to Israel, leading us to our home. I'd like to move to a second piece. (coughs) (coughs) Some people think that rabbis have all the answers. Some rabbis think that rabbis have all the answers. That is one fault I do not have. I struggle, I have questions, I have more questions than answers. So I wanna share with you now a question I have, and I'll tell you now I do not have an answer to this question. I have studied this matter for many years. I have searched every commentary I can find. I will share with you some of their answers, but not a single one of them is satisfying to me and I hope not a single one will be satisfying to you either. It is a question that spans last week's Parsha, our Parsha, and next week's Parsha. Let's start with last week's Parsha, the Parsha of Shemos. In the famous narrative of Moshe arguing with God at the burning bush, we discussed it at length last week. But we did not focus on these words God says to Moshe, I remember the promise that I made, and it is now time for me to take the Jewish people out of the persecution of Egypt. To the land that is flowing with milk and honey. And therefore, I want you to go back to Egypt, and I want you to go to Paro, Va'amartem a love, and this is what you shall say to Paro. The Atta Nelcha na Derek Shloshes Yamimba Midbar Venizbukola Shemilokenu. Paro let us leave for a three-day journey into the desert in order to sacrifice to our God. What is God telling Moshe to do? God says to Moshe. I'm going to take you out of Egypt and bring you to the land that I promised you, the land flowing with milk and honey. And when you go to Paro, say to Paro, you want to go on a three-day journey. God is literally telling Moshe to say something that is overtly duplicitous I don't understand how can God tell Moshe that here's how we're gonna do this I'm gonna take you out of Egypt I'm gonna give you the land of Israel as a morasha inheritance for all time here's the strategy you tell Paro you're only leaving for three days And that's what Moshe does. Moshe comes back. Moshe, together with Aaron, we discussed that before, Moshe obeys God's instructions. Moshe, uh, Moshe and Aaron go to Paro. And they say to Paro, Shlach es ami v'yachogu li b'amidbar. Send my people to celebrate with God in the desert. V'yachogu. from the word Chag. Chag certainly implies a one-day event. Okay, a two-day event. All right, a three-day event. But how can Moshe tell Paro that he wants to leave only for an event, which certainly implies he's coming back? And Pyro says, no, who is this God that I should listen to what he says? I don't know anything about God. And Moshe and Aaron respond and they say, our God called to us and said, na derek shloches yamim bamidbor. Our God appeared to us and said that we are to tell you that you are to allow the entire Jewish people to travel for a three-day journey, for a three-day Chag. But we all know that's not what they were planning to do. In our Parsha, the Parsha of Re. we have the plagues. And there is a plague called Arov. Which is wild animals? Vayasa Hashem came, vayavo ore, arov Cave, be'saparo. God brought this terrible plague of wild animals. The entire land of Egypt was destroyed because of these wild animals. And Paro called to Moshe and Aaron and he said, Okay, good, I give in. You can go travel. But you have to stay in Egypt. You can serve your God. (laughs) You can serve your God, but up until the border you can't you, you can't leave you have to stay in egypt moshe says no that's not going to work because first of all um it's spiritually impure for us to serve god here but rather moshe says Derek yamim we have to go a three-day journey into the desert because that's what god told us to do again there's no intention of going for three days and coming back. And then finally, in next week's parsha, we come to the 10th plague. Makas b'choros. And it was in the middle of the night. hika kol b'chor God Smote every firstborn in the land of Egypt. Vayakom paro laila and paro got up at night. Vatihit saw kagadolab and there was a great wailing and crying in Egypt. Ki <speaking> ein bayis asher <Hebrew> shah shametz, there was not a single house without someone who never had died there. And that broke Paro's will. Vayikra <speaking> Aaron <in Hebrew> Paro called to Moshe and Aaron in the middle of the night. Fa Yomer, umi Go right now. Gamatem Gamene Yisrael. Go. I give in. Uluhu Ibdu Eshashem Kedaberchem. Go serve God the way you told me you were going to serve God. Meaning go for three days. Even at this moment, even at the very end, this charade is still there. Paro thinks the plan is that they're going to go for three days and come back. In fact, if you read every single pasuk from the beginning of Shmos until the Exodus, not one single time does Moshe say to Paro, let us go free never to return from the beginning to the end. There is not one single time where Moshe simply says we are planning to emigrate from this place and relocate in another place. Moshe never says that. And I mean, just as it appears from the first source that I shared with you, this was a calculated, fraud. How in the world does God do this? Why does God have Moshe lie in order to bring this about? There's no shortage of answers. I'm just going to share a couple with you. Or HaChayim, the great Or HaChayim HaKadosh says the reason Moshe made up this story, the reason God told Moshe to make up this story is in order to create the circumstance for the splitting of the Red Sea. You remember after the Jews left and you remember that a few days later Parah was surprised and sends the army after them and there's this Uh, showdown at the Red Sea and the sea splits the Jews go through all of the soldiers of Paro are drowned in the waters of the Red Sea and you see within the narrative that is why is it three days later Paro was surprised well three days later Paro was surprised because he was expecting them to come back so Okay, three days and then a couple more days they should be back. When they're not back, Paro is surprised. So he goes chasing after them. So that's the reason in order to bring about the circumstances so that Paro would go chasing after them and leading to the miracle, the splitting of the Red Sea, Moshe had to lie and say they were only leaving for three days. Let me ask you a question. Where is the morality in that? I'm allowed to lie if it enables me to hurt you one more time. How does that make sense? Several commentators say that it was permitted for Moshe to lie because it was a situation of Sakanas Nefoshos. Their lives were in danger. They were being killed, they were being beaten without making up this story of three days, Pyro never would have let them go. Even here, it took all the plagues to get Pyro to agree to three days. So they had to do it because it was necessary to save their lives. Well, that's hard to understand because they weren't going to get out for three days on their own. Anyway, even to leave for three days required miracles. 10 plagues. Paro didn't agree even to the three days up until the 10th plague. So if the plagues could succeed in getting Paro to change his mind about the three days, so bring a few more plagues. So there's 11 plagues. So there's 12 plagues. Eventually Paro will give in and allow them to emigrate permanently. Once you're relying on miracles. There doesn't seem to be any rationalization to utilize a lie to try to convince Paro because you're using miracles anyway. The Abarbanel says, read it carefully, Moshe did not lie. He said we're going for three days. Yes, That does imply that after three days we're going to return. But he never said the words, but after three days we're coming back. He just said we're going for three days. (laughs) Is that really our standard of truth-telling? Is that what we expect from Jewish morality? I've shared with some of you before There is no place in the entire Torah where the Torah says, do not lie. Rather, there is a verse in the Torah that says, midvar sheker tirchak, from a falsehood you should stay at great distance. I've quoted to you, Rabbi Tenler, many times. It is not just that we are not allowed to lie. There must be a chasm between ourselves and falsehood. We're not even allowed to come up to the edge. We have a category of a prohibition called Gnevis Das. If I say something that simply means that you are going to intuit something that is untrue, even if I don't say the words, to say something that's misleading is prohibited. There was an owner of a painting gallery and he bought a small painting by Picasso who he knew. It was a little known painting and this gallery owner was very proud of the deal. The painting was not one of the significant Picassos, but Picasso came by to visit and he showed Picasso his painting that he had bought to sell to someone else. And Picasso said to him, it's a fake. The collector was distraught. He thought he had a Picasso and it's a fake. And then the same thing happened again. And the same thing happened again. Finally, this Gallery owner said to Picasso, you mean to say that you did not paint this painting? And Picasso said, of course I painted it. I can paint fake Picasso's just like anybody else can paint fake Picasso's. That type of inauthenticity is not Jewishly acceptable. That's not truthfulness. That's not staying away from falsehood. The great Hasidic Rebbe, Repimachus of Karitz once said, when telling lies shall be considered as grave a sin as adultery, the Mashiach will appear. We're not there yet. Rabbi Shantro Fulhersh was the rabbi in Frankfurt. He's contract with the community was that he was paid in advance every three months in his will he left instructions that his family should return to the community the pay for the period between his death and the end of that quarter that's jewish morality To say something that can only be considered truthful with some tortured logic, that is simply not truthful. How could Moshe do it? How could God command it? I don't know. As I said to you, I have searched every commentary at my disposal. I do not have a satisfying answer. If you have an answer, I would love to hear it. Until then, at the very least, it should bother us. The Me'iri, one of our great commentators, once wrote, truthfulness is very heavy. Al nos eha mu'atim. Therefore, its bearers are few. So please, until you have an answer that satisfies you, let it bother you. But I will leave you with this. When we're faced with a difficult question, and we try but we can't find an answer at that point we should do three things number one we should keep trying we should keep the question in our mind someday we may hear we may figure out an answer don't ever give up on being able to answer a difficult question that's number one number two While we have this question, the question should bother us. How can it be that God commanded Moshe to a strategy that does not appear to us to be moral? We should be bothered by it. And number three, after this Shabbos, we go on to the next Parsha. My friends, thank you very much. I wish you a great evening and a beautiful and peaceful Shabbos. And I look forward to seeing all of you soon in person.